Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to TLS Voices. My name's Toby Lustig. I'm the fiction editor of the TLS. And for this special edition of the podcast, I've slipped out of the confines of the TLS office to Penguin's studio in the Strand, where Ali Smith has kindly agreed to talk to me about her new book. Uh, And I'm sure we don't need any introductions here, but just in case, Ali is the author of eight novels, five collections of short stories, two plays, and is among... Nine plays. Nine plays? Yeah, but but they were all all, uh, kind of done at the fringe and things. Oh, right. Nine plays, then. That's seven more than I bargained for. (laughs) And um, is, among other things, the... 2014 winner of the Goldsmiths Prize for Fiction for her wonderful novel How to Be Both. And we are all delighted uh, at the TLS that an extract of her new novel Autumn is published in the current edition of the paper. Uh, So hello, Ali. Hello, me too. I'm delighted too. Thank you for doing that. That's really lovely. Thank you. Wonderful. Mm. So I obviously want to talk a little bit about the novel itself, but I understand that it's part of, it's it's the beginning of a four-part series entitled Seasonal. Mm. Um, And I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit about the project as a whole and where you see it going and then how this first novel fits into that. Surely. Uh, About 20 years ago, after I'd published a, a book of short stories and thought maybe I maybe I will try and write books maybe I'll, I'll try and have a life that, that, that we'll see what comes of a life like that I had in the back of my head the notion that at some point I would like to write four novels which would all simply be called the names of the seasons but then maybe we'd make up something bigger when you put them together although they might not um, be as connective as you'd expect they would connect maybe different ways and so it just it was at the back of my head for it's been at the back of my head for those decades partly because <sighs> Partly because I think because the, the, the more I read the novel and the more I try and think about the novel, the more I am convinced that the novel is really, really about time. And it's about how time works, how the, the form itself is about it questions. It's about time. It's really about time and society. But, but you know, from the, from the first, from Tristram Shandy, um, the, 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 the very beginning of being begot, as it were, is the ticking of the clock. And a, there's a sense in which uh, the seasons and the notion of the cyclic, you know, as a structure runs up against the the sequential and the consequential in a way which I think is really interesting. And so the, the plan, as, as I kind of, you know, c- continued having a life where I was writing books, um, the plan got to be about how the contemporaneous relates to the, what should we say, the diachronic. 
the, the drop of this, the, the stratified notion of time through us. If we look at the seasons as the cycles and we think of you know the ways in which trees are made and the, the rings which uh, form the trees are, are the, the, the years which have produced that tree. To some extent, we hold all those uh, seasons behind us so that every time we come into a new season, we come into autumn for the first time, we maybe smell autumn in the air in August and something in us... A flood of memories. You get that. I get that in spring fairly strongly as well. That okay. kind of that first warm day in March or whatever, and it takes you back to several other moments in your life when you've felt that same moment of the first warmth of March, or as you say, the first cold snap in. Yeah, in the it's autumn. really it's really kind of seasonal Madeleine, isn't it? It's really yes, there's, exactly. some, there's something which releases something at a moment which you, you couldn't foretell. You might you might think it's supposed to be spring, but it isn't spring. Or but there's there's something you know there's maybe there's maybe and, and I think it does it in all the seasons. Something will be in your head which will be cyclic we'll be back down in that, whatever that drop of, of time in us is. So I wanted to, uh, I thought, I thought uh, once, by the time I got to these books, perhaps it would be about those things. So I finished How to Be Both, which was, uh, again, about, you know, kind of layers of time and how, and how time, times coexist. And, and intersect and, yeah. Coexist, intersect, make each other. And so that the future does make the past, and the past does make the future, and the present is made of, of both. It's a kind of, it's, it's, you know, there's no getting away in the in the present moment from the past, which has produced it, and the future, which it will produce. Uh, it holds it all. Um, so those those questions were kind of in there. And so how to be both time wise was a really interesting novel to write because I wrote it up against a very tight deadline. And by the time I handed it in, we didn't have very long to produce it physically as a book, and it asked quite a lot of production physically as a book because it had to be in two forms yes, so course, yeah. my publisher Hamish Hamilton Simon Prosser Hamish Hamilton he they they pulled off a really beautiful book in a very short time and that made me think well why do we have all this hanging about when we've written a book and it could it could exist in well that was like seven weeks six weeks or something and yet look how beautiful the thing is and and so I began to think about the fastness of the world we live in the fastness of production and then I so I said to Simon how about if I try and make these books as contemporary as possible when I write them um, and so that when we when we publish them they will be absolutely of the time that they're produced and the idea was to try and write one every year for four years a nice slim uh, Muriel Spark sized novel you know one of those middle Muriel Spark 1960s 1970s novels which are very slim and look like they won't take very long to write I thought ha ha and I think you know the the beginning of the process I sat down I had some I had some ideas I was starting to write and then it, it was the beginning of this year and then it was the spring of this year and then the notion of the contemporary suddenly really exploded shifted <laughs> did you have an original deadline for for the book that you had to set back a bit because obviously so so yeah. for those who haven't read it yet the the, the novel's listed with contemporary references and, and the main political thing that's going on is brexit which um you know this has actually been described as the first post-brexit novel um i've read in a couple of places and um, there's also the, the murder of the mp um joe cox isn't there and it's, it's referred to but were you sort of already coming to a moment when you were I don't know, beginning to get the shape of the end when suddenly Brexit happened and you had to kind of go back a bit or how, t- t- tell us how it happened. I did. I was, well, uh, we, we were getting into kind of April and May and, um, and I, I, you know, we began to know that something was really up against the, you know, the, 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 there was the, there was a loggerhead coming, that there was a, uh, we had no real idea what the, the vote would end up being, even though there was a notion that it would probably be, you know, remain. <clears throat> there was, we there, you know, it began, it began to become more and more and more obvious that um, it might not. So it's May and it's June. And already, though, if I look at the book, it's already about divisions. Mm. And it's already about the the buildings of fences and walls and gates and entries and you know refusings of entry it was already about the things which have which in a way you know have gone to produce 
Brexit or what's what, you know the things which have happened during Brexit. And, and the I bureaucracy think. around that. I mean, a, a metaphor for that is there's a great scene in a post office where your character is mm. you know unable to get a passport because she's got the wrong size photo or something like yeah, that. And right. kind of these barriers, as you say, that in, come up and prevent people from. In other words, yeah. identity um, and the notion of the being in the world and the notion of how you cross a border, whether you're allowed to cross a border, all those things are, you know, shall, shall we say they're not just contemporary? Uh, partly because, as well, because the, the very beginning of the book, which is uh, which is, which is of, of kind of obviously r- referring and relating to what we know is that great humanitarian crisis that's happening right now with, with, with 65 million people trying to cross the world from places which are untenable and yet... Are, are kind of you know kind of waiting to see whether the world will have them. That's directly from the Odyssey. I've you know simply the, the opening of the book simply riffs on Odysseus washing up on the shore. Yeah. Um, With a reference to hard times as well. Your opening line is yes. it was the worst of times. It was the worst of Tale times. Of two cities. <laughs> Tale of two cities. Yeah. Uh, it was the worst. Oh of yeah, time. sorry. Yeah. Tale of two cities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hard Dickens. times. <laughs> yeah, hard times indeed. <laughs> it was the worst. That's right. So it's a so it's a the the notion of the the breakdown in a in a way the polarization. It was already in it. So I simply asked for an extra month. I was supposed to hand it in uh, to meet the deadline that we were meeting by publishing this book uh, at the end of June. And we knew it was still a very, very, very tight deadline, very, very, very slim window. Um, But I asked for an extra month because the things were already there. I simply wanted to go back through the novel and... and uh, and face the challenge of what it would mean to be a contemporary thing. Mm. Do do you think it would have been... This thing that interests me. Do you think it would have been a different book had the vote turned out differently? I mean, do, would there have been a different tenor to, to it, do you think? Or is... I mean, obviously, the crisis, the migrant crisis, that wasn't going to change. But... Uh, to what extent? To what extent did that cataclysmic referendum mm-hmm. actually change the texture of your book? I think the book just just made it clear that that was what was going to happen. Yeah, actually, and that and that sometimes the the things we make um, refer us to where we are in a way that we can't see until until we're in them. Um, so there so there's something in the book which was all which which if, you know when when I went back and looked at it. After Brexit, Brexit was already there in this book. The questions and the preoccupations of it were leading to uh, that particular polarisation, that particular divide. The fact there was even a referendum at all was part of that, wasn't it? But the shock of the aftermath and the particular shock of the the shift in articulation in this country is what I think is one of the things which the language of the book, at least, was already had already begun to address. Uh, and and to, to some extent, you know, it didn't need that much shifting. Let's put it that way. But but the very notion, in any case, of a of how do you write a novel? And the word novel in itself means new, and it means newness, and it means news. It means the novel thing, the newest thing, the thing. I mean, the novel has always been formally about, supposed to be about. What's new? What's what's you know the the, the newness of its form? Literature is news that stays news. So that's it, a pound. Exactly. So so what's the point of a novel? Um, in a way, uh, when, to, to paraphrase one of the things that someone says in the book, when the news happens so fast that it's like a flock of sheep running off a hill, but running off a cliff, sorry, but in, in fast forward. What, what's, how do you write a novel that's fast forward, Thomas Hardy? Um, what, what, does the, what, can the form, what can the form do? What does it do in this age of such uh, immediate uh, information and then a loss of and forgetting of information as the next information takes its place. And I think yeah, one, one of the bits about the book that I think really addresses that for me is, is the, the mention of Christine Keeler, mm-hmm. who was in the 60s. She mm-hmm. was a huge news story. And then I think one of the characters wonders how much she's known today. So mm-hmm. you're dealing with a very contemporary, but also you're, you're dealing with things that were big news at the time that then fade out of... 
that then cultural memory. That then fade out of cultural memory, but actually were the things which changed cultural everything. Yes. Um, and that's that's the thing. I came across the. I mean, the, the, I was already working on the uh, reading round. Oh, it's tough reading. Reading about the Perfumo scandal and the Perfumo case. Oh my goodness, it was, I, felt, I felt like I needed Wellingtons or something. <laughs> it's so, very oh, sordid, oh, man. But the reason I came to it at all was because I had. Well, the notion of autumn, it's, there was always going to be some Keatsian question at the back of the notion of autumn, we can't, because of course, of course there is, because Keats in a way has produced for us the English autumn, the, the, you know, the, the autumn in English, as it were, that, that we, we, when we say the word, there's Keats standing there in all his few years with his astonishing, towering, mellow, beautiful harvest poem, which uh, in its own way changed poetry forever. And I had come across by serendipitous chance because oh, those chances are such. There's the you know thank God for them. Mm. Um, some of the work of Pauline Boaty, uh, the the female pop artist uh, who worked in the UK in in the early sixties. Um, and I should just say one of your your main character mm. Elizabeth. She's mm. she's interested in studying her when mm. she's an art history undergraduate. And actually, the extract that we're running in the paper is is about mm. Pauline Boaty and her interest in her. That's right. And she she uh, turns up at, at the core of this book. Thank goodness because Boaty worked absolutely in the art of now the mythology of now you know because she was uh, interested in uh, the nostalgia of now is actually what she called it the nostalgia of now what it means to take a step back and to feel about whatever it is that's happening absolutely impact impactingly you know right now but what, how she did it and what she did booty was an extraordinary her works are, are i mean she died very young this is the this is the keatsian as it were measure of it. She died at the age of 28. She left behind a very small body of work that survived. The small body of work that survived is vital to to an extreme. It's, was she appreciated in her own life? Um, yeah, she was, oh my God, appreciated. Pauline Booty made, uh, <laughs> a, she helped make, she helped produce uh, what we now think of as you know, legendary 60s culture. I mean, Booty wasn't just the female pop artist and featured in Ken Russell's Pop Goes the Easel as uh, alongside a Peter Blake and Derek Boshi and Peter Phillips as the female pop artist we would have lost if it weren't for that film to some extent. But she uh, also became a theatre actress, a, a TV actor. She was the model for the character of Liz, played by Julie Christie and Billy Lyre. I mean, really the model. I mean, she had uh, conversations with Tom Courtney about how a, a chap would feel about a woman like Liz, wandering about the streets and, and, and liking him and him liking her. You know, she she, um, she danced on Ready, Steady, Go. She uh, was... I know she she's was an Alfie. I think she was for she's an Alfie for twenty two really joyous, beautiful behind the scenes seconds <laughs> where where she and she and uh, Michael Caine as Alfie nip behind a, a reel of clothes in the dry cleaners, and then he comes out the other side saying, "And I was getting you know my suits cleaned into the bargain." You know, it's just a perfect moment of of kind of glorious, joyous sex expression you know and in Alfie those are quite rare those moments actually but Pauline Booty's it anyway she died very young she left this astonishing work one of the pictures that she made was of Keeler on the chair on the on this she'd been commissioned to to do a, a work about the perfume scandal that picture has disappeared nobody knows where it is some you know there are a lot of her works nobody knows where they are and that's one of them um and the real kick for me about Booty was her notion of the image as something of a construct and she knew this in the early 60s she wanted to talk about the image as construct which is why she started first with collage second by painting collage painting things which looked like collage but weren't were photorealistically um, productions of something looking like a collage and then she began to photorealistically produce 
replicated imagery. In other words, an image which you had already seen, she would paint, and she would paint painstakingly so that you would get an image of Marilyn breaking into a uh, an abstract. There would be a figurative image of Marilyn, and it, and it would be a still from Some Like It Hot. Um, and it would be so photorealistically rendered uh, and at the same time you would have this push of the abstract against it and the push at it back at the abstract so that you had this argument between figuration and abstraction in any case you and then you had the glorious figure of Marilyn the glorious bright colours that were coming off the picture Boti was interested in addressing the image as an image that in itself uh, the very notion that we can step back and see something as an image which is being fed to us or we're seeing or is reflecting us. It feels like a very contemporary thing. I mean, I know the pop artists were talking about that 50 years ago, but Mm. it it seems more relevant now than ever before. It's like basic toolbox of how to uh, survive in the world where the image is paramount and when images come at us in in their millions every day. I'm interested. I'm interested in your your um, use of imagery and, and image in, in your writing because obviously your you know your medium is words, but you actually spend quite a lot of time in certainly in recent novels talking about art, talking about and thinking how to be both Francesco, the, the Renaissance painter, and there's obviously Pauli Boti in this. What, what role does does sort of fine art play in your writing? What is, I mean, is, is everything you've been saying about about the image, or is there another kind of element to it to to do with I don't know. Um, a permanence and the, you know the way kind of painting stay through time. Mm. Okay, we we live in the century after the century of image. I mean the 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 film century, the TV century, which produced us, um, a, is now going on to produce whatever. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns will come next of, of uh, image culture um, we can't get away from images we, we uh, have been constructing our narratives by image uh, for the last 120 years more but particularly since uh, we began to go to cinema and, and television itself was, was developed So and screens, screens everywhere screens, 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 pictures, pictures, pictures this is now how we tell our stories therefore if you're going to tell a story you're going to need to refer to images you're, you're, you're going to need to go to the thing which, you know, which is current in our lives now if you want it to be about now so there's no 
getting away from the effect, the emotional effect, the sensual effect, the question of analysis of those effects of the image um, and the ways in which the image plays in narrative. But new, fine art is new to me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I know pretty little. I don't, I don't know much about art. I love cinema. I always have, and I love, I love art. But uh, it's new to me, but it's, an, it's been terribly, terribly exciting. To be able to go and to look at some pictures which were painted 500 years ago and to realise that they're called fresco because actually they're fresh, because the thing you are seeing is still fresh, mm-hmm. because it hasn't. You know, earthquakes withstanding because the Palazzo Schifanoia, which is the place where the frescoes and how to be both, uh, the real frescoes referred to and how to be both are, um, you go there and you see something as bright and as uh, as fresh and as alive as it always has been. And all the questions of time just disappear. That allows you to have a conversation with the past, doesn't it? So There's no what, question yeah. about that. You just have it. You're yeah. having it while yeah, you stand there. there. You know, you just, uh, you are in, you are in dialogue with now and then as you stand there. I want to quickly mm. ask you about the mm. central relationship um, mm. in uh, in your book, which mm. is a, between this character, Elizabeth, who, um, I mean, they, we see her at various points in her life, but she's in her early 30s, I think, as, mm. uh, in the present yes. day. Yes. And she is very friendly with, with a former neighbour who, who in 2016 is, is a 101-year-old hundred, hundred man. Yes. And she knew him growing up when he was a slightly less old but still very old man. Yes. And I just wonder what... what um, it, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful relationship and it's very... There's something incredibly touching about it and very funny as well. But wh- where did that idea come from? What, what was it about the idea of this kind of relationship mm. between a very aged person or very aged man and a younger woman? Where did that come okay. from for you? So... With novels, you think you're going to get to choose and then you find you don't get to choose at all. I mean, I had started this novel thinking that it would be a farce set in an antique shop in which one of those TV programmes was being made where people go in and buy something and then try and sell and it to auction later. Elizabeth's mother gets involved in Elizabeth's mother does as, as part of, I suppose, what you would call an underplot or a subplot, gets involved in a in the production of a, a programme which is about those artefacts from the past and how uh, concerned and excited we are by their worth. Um... But at the back of all this, while I was trying to work, while I was beginning to work on this book, there was this character who had already announced his name and who was very old and who was puckish and young and who was uh, as light on his kind of kind of elemental feet as he'd ever been, regardless of his age. And if you're going to talk again in terms of autumn, the notions of length of life and shortness of life, and I began to think I was listening in the wrong direction so I, I stopped and I allowed for this character, in which point Elizabeth's demand just turned up. And you go with it when that happens because you're so relieved that someone has turned up. <laughs> so there was Daniel, there was Elizabeth, and it was clear that they were lifelong dialoguers, as it were. So the very notion of the, what should we say, the shortness of life, the length of life uh, held in the moment where time doesn't make any difference at all because you are just in dialogue with somebody. And he's also in this kind of very late stage of his life. He's in, I think, what you call an in- increased sleep period. So he's, you know, he's probably not far from death and he's sleeping a-, a lot, which allows him to dream a lot, which allows him to traverse different parts of his life. And he even, I mean, towards the beginning, he thinks he's dead, doesn't he? And, and there's a lovely quote, I think you say, I've written it down somewhere, um, uh, death, it's full of surprises, um, which I thought was wonderful. Um, but that's also allowed you to kind of play with time, hasn't it? Daniel is a gift for anybody writing anything especially when the anything is about now because Daniel is 101 years old right now as you read this book that whole stretch of time and the people who were before Daniel are all held in Daniel at that moment the whole of that history behind us 
and you know specifics of that history and particularly specifics of the shift of history in Europe uh, over the hundred years that that have made Daniel's what should we say form physical form they made him the man that he is uh, you know they're held in the actual bodily self which we all have you know which is his shape which he's taken so it you know there was no there was just simply no getting away from the gift as it were of a character so properly layered mm. because time is short and a hundred year, hundred and hundred one years I mean I was I was thinking the other day there's a, there's a, a book about um, her mother dying that Simone de Beauvoir writes called A Very Easy Death and her mother's quite elderly when she dies and it's a very easy death as Simone de Beauvoir says but she says Simone de Beauvoir says it beautifully she says it doesn't matter how old or how young you are when you're going it's the same regardless it's just like an aeroplane cutting out mm. in the sky mm. and you're in it why would we imagine that it's that different, any different with whatever the experiences we have? Life is absolutely about the now lived with that, whatever our layering is of the past and whatever the layering is of the future that, that belongs in whatever state we're living in the now. And so the relationship between Elizabeth mm. and, um, mm. and this older man, there, mm. there's a sort of a, there's almost a kind of a love element to it, mm. isn't there? I mean, it's a platonic love, but in, there's, a, there's a bit uh, when you talk about her as a young woman in her late teenage years or early 20s sort of having love affairs but saying she can't really commit love-wise to anyone because she's got this other thing going on in the background. Mm. I just wondered if you could say a little bit about about that kind of, that sort of platonic relationship. Love comes in all its shapes. Why would we think it only takes certain shapes? Why would we ever put boundaries on the human imagination? Which is something Elizabeth's mother sort of wants to do, doesn't she? She's a bit suspicious of this relationship. And well, you know, he's a, he's a much, much older man and, you know, they've just moved house and he seems to her to be foreign and, well, you know, what, who is he and why does why is her daughter European. so interested? He's, you know, Elizabeth <laughs> says, his mother says, you know, he's, he's gay and Elizabeth says, no, he's European. <laughs> European. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, there's, there's, you know, it's the, it's the she's, she's, she's interested in why uh, her child would be drawn to difference, as it were. We're all drawn to difference. Thank God for difference. Thank God for difference in the face of indifference. That's all I can say. And there's and there's 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 something about um, it. Just once the characters were there, that was their. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. If characters turn up, that's the relationship they had, and they have. Um, but again, it just reminds me to say that there is no given shape for love, and the loves that we feel for people are as varying and as multifarious. <laughs> as we are. Well, I think that's a lovely place mm. in which to stop. Thank you very much indeed. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to read out um, the extract that we published mm. um, this week, if that's OK. Thanks, Tom. Um, Thanks for speaking to me. Thank, thank you. you very much. Mm. Thank you for speaking to me. It was the end of a winter. This one was the winter of 2002 to 2003. Elizabeth was 18. It was February. She had gone down to London to march in the protest, not in her name. All across the country... People had done the same thing, and millions more people had all across the world. On the Monday after, she wandered through the city, strange to be walking streets where life was going on as normal, traffic and people going their usual backwards and forwards along streets that had had no traffic, had felt like they'd belonged to the two million people from their feet on the pavement all the way up to sky because of something to do with truth, when she'd walked the exact same route only the day before yesterday. That was the Monday she unearthed an old, red, hardback catalogue in an art shop on Charing Cross Road. It was cheap, three pounds. It was in the reduced books bin. It was of an exhibition a few years ago. Pauline Boaty, 1960s pop art painter. Pauline who? A female British pop art painter? Really? 
This was interesting to Elizabeth, who'd been studying art history as one of her subjects at college and had been having an argument with her tutor who'd told her that categorically there had never been such a thing as a female British pop artist, not one of any worth, which is why there were none recorded as more than footnotes in British pop art history. The artist had made collages, paintings, stained glass work and stage sets. She'd had quite a life story. She'd not just been a painter, she'd also done theatre and TV work as an actress, had chaperoned Bob Dylan round London before anyone had heard of Bob Dylan, had been on the radio telling listeners what it was like to be a young woman in the world right then, and had nearly been cast in a film in a role that Julie Christie got instead. She'd had everything ahead of her in swinging London, and then she'd died, at the age of 28, of cancer. She'd gone to the doctor because she was pregnant and they'd spotted the cancer. She'd refused an abortion, which meant she couldn't have radiotherapy. It would hurt the child. She'd given birth and she died four months after. Malignant thymoma is what it said in the list of things under the word chronology at the back of the catalogue. It was a sad story, and nothing like the paintings, which were so witty and joyous and full of unexpected colour and juxtapositions that Elizabeth, flicking through the catalogue, realised that she was smiling. The painter's last painting had been of a huge and beautiful female arse, nothing else, framed by a jovial proscenium arch, like it was filling the whole stage of a theatre. Underneath, in bright red, was a word in huge and rambunctious-looking capitals. Bum. Elizabeth laughed out loud. What a way to go. The artist's paintings were full of images of people of the time, Elvis, Marilyn, people from politics. There was a photograph of a now-missing painting with the famous image of the woman who caused the scandal scandal, whose sitting nude and backwards on a designer chair had had something to do with politics at the time. Then Elizabeth held the catalogue open at a page with a particular painting on it. It was called Untitled Sunflower Woman, circa 1963. It was of a woman on a bright blue background. Her body was a collage of painted images. A man with a machine gun pointing at the person looking at the picture formed her chest. A factory formed her arm and shoulder. A sunflower filled her torso. An exploding airship made her crotch. An owl mountains, coloured zigzags. At the back of the book was a black and white reproduction of a collage. It had a large hand holding a small hand, which was holding the large hand back. Down at the bottom of the picture, there were two ships in a sea and a small boat filled with people. Elizabeth went to the British Library periodicals room and sat at a table with Vogue September 1964, Features 9 Spotlight, 92 Paola Paragon of Princesses, 110 Living Doll, Pauline Boaty Interviewed by Nell Dunn, 120 Girls in Their Married Bliss by Edna O'Brien. Alongside adverts for the bright red young Jaeger Look Again coat, the Goya Golden Girl Beauty Puff and the Bandeau Bra and Panty Girdle Cut Light Briefs to Leave You Feeling Free All Over was Pauline Boaty, Blonde. Brilliant. 26. She has been married for a year and her husband is inordinately proud of her achievements. Boasts that she makes a lot of money painting and acting. She has found by experience that she is in a world where female emancipation is a password and not a fact. She is beautiful, therefore she should not be clever. The full-page photo by David Bailey was a large close-up of Boaty's face with a tiny doll's face the other way up, just behind her. PB. I find that I have a fantasy image. It's that I really like making other people happy, which is probably egotistical because they think, what a lovely girl, you know? 
but it's also that I don't want people to touch me. I don't mean physically particularly, though it's that as well. So I always like to feel that I'm sort of floating by and just occasionally being there, seeing them. I'm very inclined to play a role that someone sets for me, particularly when I first meet people. One of the reasons I married Clive was because he really did accept me as a human being, a person with a mind. N.D. Men think of you just as a pretty girl, you mean? P.B. No, they just find it embarrassing when you start talking. Lots of women are intellectually more clever than lots of men, but it's difficult for men to accept the idea. N.D. If you start talking about ideas, they just think you're putting it on. P.B. Not that you're putting it on, they just find it slightly embarrassing that you're not doing the right thing. Elizabeth photocopied the pages in the magazine. She took the Pauline Boaty exhibition catalogue to college and put it on her tutor's desk. Oh, right, Boaty, the tutor said. He shook his head. Tragic story, he said. Then he said, they're pretty dismissible. Poor paintings, not very good. She was quite Julie Christie, very striking girl. There's a film of her, Ken Russell, and she's a, a bit eccentric in it, if I remember rightly. Dresses in a top hat, miming along to Shirley Temple. I mean, attractive and so on, but pretty execrable. Where can I find that film? Elizabeth said. I have absolutely no idea, the tutor said. She was gorgeous, but not a painter of anything more than minor interest. She stole everything of any note in her work from Warhol and Blake. What about the way she uses images as images? Elizabeth said. Oh God, everybody and his dog was doing that then, the tutor said. What about everybody and her dog? Elizabeth said. I'm sorry, the tutor said. What about this? Elizabeth said. She opened the catalogue at a page with two paintings reproduced side by side. One was of a painting of images of ancient and modern men. Above, there was a blue sky with a US Air Force plane in it. Below, there was a smudged colour depiction of the shooting of Kennedy in the car in Dallas between black and white images of Lenin and Einstein. Above the head of the dying president were a matador, a deep red rose, some smiling men in suits, a couple of the Beatles. The other picture was of a fleshy strip of images superimposed over a blue-green English landscape vista, complete with a little Palladian structure. Inside the superimposed strip were several images of part-naked women in lush and coquettish porn magazine poses. But at the centre of these coy poses was something unadulterated, pure and blatant, a woman's naked body, full frontal, cut off at the head and the knees. The tutor shook his head. "'I'm not seeing anything new here,' he said." cleared his throat. There are lots and lots of highly sexualised images throughout pop art, he said. What about the titles? Elizabeth said. The titles of the paintings were It's a Man's World 1 and It's a Man's World 2. The tutor had gone a ruddy red colour at the face. Is there, was there anything else like this being painted by women at the time? Elizabeth said. The tutor shut the catalogue. He cleared his throat again. Why should we imagine that gender matters here? The tutor said. That's actually my question too, Elizabeth said. In fact, I came to see you today to change my dissertation title. I'd like to work on the representation of representation in Pauline Boaty's work. You can't, the tutor said. Why can't I? Elizabeth said. There's not nearly enough material available on Pauline Boaty, the tutor said. I think there is, Elizabeth said. There's next to no critical material, he said. That's one of the reasons I think it would be a particularly good thing to do, Elizabeth said. I'm your dissertation supervisor, the tutor said, and I'm telling you there isn't, and it isn't. You're going off down a rarefied cul-de-sac here, do I make myself clear? 
then I'd like to apply to be moved to a new supervisor, Elizabeth said. Do I do that with you? Or do I go to the admin office? A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.